Hello everyone, this is the Inside AI podcast, a show for researchers in life sciences that aims to answer real-life questions about microscopy, image analysis and assistive AI practices. I am Benjamin, a life sciences professional and the lead content creator at KML Vision. I bring several years of experience in biomedical sciences and biotechnology with a specialization in histology and image analysis. My co-host is Elisa and together we will guide you through the world of AI in life sciences. Hi everyone, I'm a content writer at KML Vision and a future doctor. With my experiences in scientific assistance, lecturing and academic coaching, I'm beyond excited to join this conversation and ask all the burning questions on your behalf. In this series, we will engage in thought-provoking conversations with scientists and researchers, giving you insights into their experiences. Let's kickstart this episode and unlock the secrets that lie within. Hello and welcome back everybody to our interview series. We are very excited to be speaking with Sarah Barnett from the University of Liverpool today. And the topic will be Bridging Science and Ethics, the Evolution of Cum Models, Ethical Standards and AI Advancements. Uh, hi Sarah, it's great to have you here today. For the start, it would be great if you could introduce yourself a bit, um, tell us about your background and your role at the University of Liverpool. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Um, so my current role is I manage uh, the egg facility at the University of Liverpool. So this facility is a lab space where uh, people can come and use the CAM model. So we have all the equipment for them to use. We offer training, um, advice on protocols and optimizing experiments and things. But people can also pay for, say, me to do the experiments for them as well if they want preliminary data for a grant application, for example. Um, and before this, I was a postdoc in Professor Judy Coulson's lab. And this is where um, I started using the CAM model. Um, we were developing the model for the use with a cancer called mesothelioma. So this is a cancer of the lung lining caused by asbestos. And there's really no good treatments for this. So we were developing the model to use um, as a screening method to look at new treatments for mesothelioma. And also at the University of Liverpool, we also already had somebody who'd set up the model, Dr. Anne Herman. So she trained me and originally set up the facility here. So it's been running for quite a while at the university. So that's how I got to where I am. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, sounds very interesting to me, especially the setup that people can uh, come and use your laboratory. So you basically mm -hmm. provide them with the uh, equipment? Yes. Yeah, so we have... Um, Incubator setup, so the eggs yeah. need to be just incubated at 37, but they need quite a high amount of humidity, so around 50 to 60 percent humidity. And on the mm -hmm. first three days, they need to be rocked. So we have incubators that will rock the eggs for the first three days. And then uh, the way it's set up is they then move them to another incubator that's not rocking anymore. And then um, they can implant the cells there. So we've got a hood for them to use. Uh, also a hood for working with human tissue because we're working up a PDX model and, and we also order the eggs. So, yeah, it's just a space where they can come and utilize the model, but they don't have to buy all the equipment themselves and all the consumables to do that. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense, yes. Yeah. Um, and what inspires you to, to work in that field? So it all started with a project before I worked on the CAM model with Judy um, in Judy's lab. So we were looking again at mesothelioma. 
and looking at new treatments. And this project was supposed to start in vitro and then work up to mouse models. But we really didn't want to go into mouse models, you know, just for ethical reasons and, and also cost and things like this. So because we had somebody, Dr. Anne Herman, already working on the CAM model at Liverpool, she gave a talk, an NC3R's symposium. And that's when we sort of got interested in whether could we use the CAM model instead of mice. And that, that's where we really got started uh, on using this model. Can you provide a brief overview of what the CAM model is and its significance in biomedical research? And are there specific types of studies or diseases where the CAM model is particularly effective? So um, it utilizes fertilized hen's eggs. Um, and basically, as the embryo develops, a membrane forms around the outside of the embryo. And this is the CAM. And it's a very thin uh, layer, but it's highly vascularized and it's just below the eggshell. And it's particularly great because we can access it by just making a hole in the eggshell without disturbing the embryo or doing anything to harm it. And we can implant cells or tissue. And because it's highly vascularized and there's lots of nutrients and it's oxygen rich, it's a really great platform to grow anything basically on it. And the main diseases I would say that are good to look at are solid tumour cancers because you can basically form a xenograft. So you can grow a tiny version of a cancer on the CAM. And that's the main thing that we use it for. But you can also look at angiogenesis because it's highly vascularized. You can look at the formation of blood vessels or look at, for example, drugs that will disrupt uh, vascularization. It's really good uh, for studies like that as well. And the main advantages, I think, for us are around cost. Eggs are very cheap. The husbandry requirements, as I mentioned earlier, you just need an incubator that is at 37 and has high humidity. So you don't need CO2 or anything like that. And you don't need a home office license. So these are the primary advantages for us for using this model. If we compare the CAM model to traditional rodent models, how does it differ from them? So the, the main differences are the length of time of the model. So we only go up to 14 days. So we implant on day seven. So we have a seven day window from day seven to 14 where we can grow a tumour. Um, and this can actually be a, an advantage or a disadvantage. So it's very quick. So you can do a lot of experiments in a shorter amount of time. However, if you want to do a longer treatment window, you can't unless you have a, a home office license. What would you say are the primary challenges when establishing the CAM models and mm -hmm. how do you address them? I would say that the main issues we have are um, seasonal effects. Um, and I think this can actually be also an issue for mice. So in the winter, the number of fertilized eggs that we get from our supplier and also the survival of the eggs is, is a lot poorer. So around, it can be as low as 50%. So we just have to adjust for this by ordering more eggs essentially. Um, but it's just naturally birds would not hatch eggs in the winter, right? So that science doesn't stop because it's winter, right? So we just have to carry on. We just adjust that way. Other issues can be contamination. So as I said, cancer cells really like to grow in the eggs, but so do bacteria, fungi, 
you know it's a very nutritious environment so mm. just being really careful to clean the eggs and things and keep your incubators clean things like this because otherwise if you have a breakout it's it's it can be really quite bad but it would be the same for cell culture or anything like that um and these are the the real day-to-day -day issues that we have um other issues are that some experimental designs just don't work. So there are some diseases that are very difficult to look at. So for example, blood cancers, these are a lot harder to look at in the CAM model because you wouldn't grow a solid tumor xenograft to look at that. So there are diseases that wouldn't really work as well in the, in the CAM model. How do you address that? Um problem with contamination i mean um, you mentioned already keeping everything very clean but do you also use or introduce for example antibiotics or any other substances that can help you prevent it we don't introduce antibiotics or antifungal uh, reagents but we also do the same with cell culture because you don't want to have an underlying infection that you can't see that may influence your results so you know you could have an inflammatory response because you have a an infection that you can't see that will influence your results. So because I run the facility, we just have basically schedules for cleaning. So everyone has to clean their eggs, but all the incubators are cleaned on a regular basis. We clean all the water reservoirs, we change the tubing. You know, we just have a schedule that means everything is kept as clean as possible. Mm -hmm. All right. And Do you use a certain breed of jigs or, or eggs or is, can you use everything? Just your normal domestic chicken. There mm -hmm. are different okay. types, but yeah, we just use brown eggs. You can also use white eggs, okay. but we, we use brown eggs. Yeah. Why do you use brown eggs? Is there any advantage or? So the difference that I found between brown and white is the, um, the shell. So the shell on a white egg is softer. Mm, okay. So if you want to do what's called ex ovo, so where you take the whole thing out of the egg. I find the white eggs are better because they open up easier. Mm -hmm. But the brown eggs have a sort of thicker, harder shell. And if you want to keep the, it inside the egg, it's sort of better because it's harder and firmer. Do you know what I mean? Less likely to break, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I understand, yeah. But there isn't really any difference to what's okay. inside, you know. Mm -hmm. The cam is the same. <laughs> <laughs> Can you discuss or share any recent advancements or modifications in the CAM model that have enhanced its utility in research? Yeah, so I think the main advance is a sort of relating to the analysis side, really interested in utilizing preclinical imaging. So there's a lot of devices set up for mice, so MRI, bioluminescent imaging, PET-CT, and at the university we have a preclinical imaging center where they use rodent models. And what we've been doing is utilizing the egg model in those preclinical imaging devices. And because an egg is a very similar size to a mouse, we can basically adapt all of these modalities to use with the egg model. So this then means you've got a way of monitoring, say the effect of a drug on a xenograft while it's still in the egg. And this is this means you can do longitudinal monitoring and then later down the line, you can do your histology or expression analysis mm -hmm. with QPCR side. So this is something that we're really interested in. 
So to do the bioluminescence, we just label our cell lines with a reporter. For, say, human tissue, you can't really do that. So we're using the PET-CT. And this is what we're developing at the moment. It's really quite exciting to be able to look at the effect of a drug on a sample of patient tissue while it's growing in the egg. That really sounds like valuable research. And I hope we can delve into some of its insights during our further discussion. But I also would like to address the 3R in animal research, which refers to replacement, reduction and refinement. And I would like to know how the CAM model aligns with these principles of the 3R. So the CAM model is a partial replacement for mice. So particularly the xenograft model. So if you do a xenograft on the CAM, this is a partial replacement for mice xenograft models. And so basically, because it's a more slightly ethical model um, and doesn't require a home office license, that's why it's a, a partial replacement. Our model as well, the way that we engraft, we don't use matrigel. So we also do in a more a protocol that is more animal free than other people, because a lot of people utilize matrigel and matrigel obviously requires animals to generate it. You mentioned already that it is a partial um, replacement of animal models. Um, what are the limitations to the CAM model that um, might necessitate uh, the use of rodent models in certain um, scenarios? Yeah, so the two main things that we found, as, as I mentioned, the, the time frame. So we have seven days from when we implant. We usually only treat from day 10. So your treatment window is 10 to 14. So if you want to do a long-term treatment, you cannot do it with the CAM model. So this mm -hmm. is where mice would come in because you can treat for weeks and months in a mouse model. Also, the immune system. So it's naturally immune suppressed at the stage that we're doing the experiments. So there's naive cells present, but they're not. They haven't matured into the immune cells yet. So... If you want to look at the interaction with the immune system, you can't really do this. You would need an immune competent mouse. There are ways around this. So we're looking at co-cultures. So you can implant, say, for example, a cancer cell line and calves together and look at how they interact. You can also use patient tissue, which naturally will have immune cells present when you implant it. Um, but it's again a partial replacement. You might still want to go into the mice to really look at it properly. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. How do you see the balance between the need for animal research and the ethical um, considerations? Like, um, are the three R principles well established already, or is there a long way to go? What is, um, yeah, your opinion on that, or your experience actually? So I think. There's a lot of room for utilizing other models. So there are lots of models from cell lines to mice. So you've got spheroids, organoids, organs on a chip, explants, the CAM model. And I think the way to be more ethical is to basically use as many of the other models as possible before you need to go into a mouse. Or you might not need to then go into a mouse. If you're confident enough, with all your other models, you should mean you might remove the need to, to ever go into a mouse mm -hmm. unless you want to look at things like immune system. The thing for us is a lot of these other animal-free models 
don't mimic things like vascularization. And this is where the CAM model is, is really, really good because you've got this natural like vascularization. And when we engraft tumors, you can see this reconfiguration of the vascularization. You increase in the complexity from mm -hmm. just an organoid, for example. I think there is still space for animal models. I think we can just drastically reduce, you know, the use of animal models entirely, but also the protected animal models, such as rodent models. May I quickly jump in? Because you mentioned immune system. Is this immunological situation of the eggs comparable to, to the human situation? Because you mentioned drug testing and the efficiency. I imagine that this must be a very important consideration. It's a balance. So we need it to be immune suppressed to get really good engraftment so you don't get rejection of what you're mm -hmm. trying to grow in the egg. But yes, there may be, you're not getting the full effect because you don't have the full um, immune system present. So that is why possibly you would still want to go into immune competent mouse to really see, especially if it is something that requires the immune system like immunotherapy. You know, because you want to actually activate the immune system to attack the cancer. And you can't really replicate this in the CAM model. Okay, so this would be one thing where there might still be the there need nice for yeah, mice. A place for mice, yeah. Okay. And how does your workflow usually look like? What models besides the CAM model do you use in your laboratory? So for mesothelioma, we have a panel of 20 cell lines. So we generally mm -hmm. do all of our work. We do a pre-screening in the cell lines, and then we take those cell lines and engraft them on the CAM, and then we try and replicate the um, results from the drug screen in the CAM mm -hmm. model. Yeah. Okay, I see. We also briefly touched the topic of uh, imaging already. Mm -hmm. um, and as I know, you're also using image analysis software for your uh, yeah, CAM research, basically. And uh, I would be interested in how has AI image analysis enhanced the capabilities of the uh, CAM research or your CAM model? As I mentioned, the vascularization. So the ACOSA software is excellent for looking at the vascularization. And what we noticed is when we engraft the cells, there's a radical change in the pattern of the blood vessels. You can see it by eye because um, normally they look like a branching tree. And when we engraft our mesothelioma cell lines, for example, it becomes like a radial pattern coming out or into the tumor. So we utilize the software to basically quantify this because you can see it by eye, but you don't really know what is his that's changing. Um, you know, is it branching? Is it, you know, the length of the set, the blood vessels, things like that. And even what's quite nice, without the quantification, the mask that you generate really makes it a lot easier to see. It is actually drastically different when you haven't grafted something and the cells must be recruiting those blood vessels. It's, it's really quite neat. Mm -hmm. So that means you can make patterns visible that you don't usually see by eye, right? Yeah, so obviously tiny changes that... Mm -hmm. You can sort of see, oh, there is something globally happening, but going down to the, because it's obviously on such a small scale, software allows you to visualize it better because it creates this mask. So it makes it more obvious to the eye, but then actually quantifies what's going on 
what are the changes that are happening? What is um, your readout when you use um, when when you use the software? Like, what can you deduce or derive from that? For example, if you um, see there is a change in the vessel length or thickness. Yeah, so there's a um, number of branching points, length, total area, thickness, things mm -hmm. like this. And we were quite surprised when we got the analysis. It was actually the thickness that was changing, which is not obvious by eye. Um, so that was really interesting. Looking forward, how do you see the role of AI image analysis evolving in the field of CAM research or in general um, drug target evaluation? Yeah, so what's really interesting to us so we work with quite a lot of people in a more translational field so clinical field they want to use ai to basically take patient data so like scans and blood results and get ai to train it and be able to predict for that patient what would be the best route of treatment so how we envision you could link that to the cam model is you could then take that patient tissue and graft it in the cam and actually test the treatment because it's such a short time frame before you give it to the patient. Do you see what I mean? So you could have this sort of personalized medicine avenue, but the AI is predicting what is the best treatment to test for that patient based on all of the information we have. And that would be mm -hmm. really cool. Instead of just giving them, I'll give them chemo. You yeah. know, what is the best chance for this patient? And what we thought was quite interesting is the other way is if you could train the AI software to look at the tumors we've grown in the model and get it to predict what disease it thinks it is and validate, oh, we are growing mesothelioma or we are growing pancreatic cancer. Do you see what I mean? And it would really validate that what we're growing looks like the real, like what you would get in the patient. Yeah, that would be the ultimate goal, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How do you usually image um, the, um, your tumor models or your CAM models? Is it like in ovo, so to say, or do you remove the, the membrane out of the eggshell? So we do. So first we take a picture of it in ovo with mm -hmm. a microscope. So we do bright field. And uh, if we're using cell lines, they're normally labeled with a fluorescent marker. So uh, we actually use ZS Green, which is like GFP. This just helps better visualization. but it also You'll have a mass, but you'll be able to see sort of where the cells have gone as well that aren't part of the xenograft. And then we cut it out and we take more pictures of it once we've dissected it out, just with the microscope. And then we do histology normally because we want to see inside. So by doing histology, we can section it and get a cross section inside and see what's mm -hmm. going on. Any, any specific staining you use for the histology? Yeah, so routinely we use a marker for tumor cells, so it might be pancytokeratin. And then we look at things, markers for fibroblasts, because there are chick fibroblasts in there. So alpha-SMA is a good one. Um, we use key 67 which is a marker for proliferation. You can use um, cleaved caspase to look at apoptosis, things like this. So we do a general characterization of health, you know, vascularization, interaction with microenvironment, things like that. And then there might be markers that are relating to your specific questions. So if you're using a drug that induces DNA damage, you can look at a DNA damage marker, things like that. Do you see changes in the tumor microenvironment between those uh, different models or is it um, 
at the very early stage quite the same. Do you mean between, say, the cam and a mouse? Yeah, for example. So what we found, which was really promising, was the mesothelioma. It was very similar between the CAM xenografts that we generated and what others had done in mice. So for us, what we're trying to do is prove that the CAM is just as good as a mouse xenograft model. And this was really promising that our histology looked very similar to what others had achieved in mice. Those are stunning results. It's really great to see that there are some steps into the right direction in this area. And I'm sure other scientists will be very encouraged to dig deeper into this area as well. I would now like to move on with a bit of a different topic. Um, when I prepared for this interview, I looked up the women in science mm -hmm. and I was really surprised when I found the UNESCO Institute for Statistics data, uh, which states that only around 30 percent of the world's researchers are women. So I would now like to talk about this with you. So in your experiences, why could this be the case and what are the unique challenges, but also opportunities faced by women in the scientific community? So I think historically, and I think it is changing, but obviously we will only see those changes slowly over time, mm -hmm. is relating to having a family. So I think traditionally having a family and working in science did not really go together very well because working in science, it's not necessarily a nine to five job. Sometimes experiments, you know, have time points that are outside of nine to five, might be on the weekend, things like this. But at the University of Liverpool, I don't feel like I've ever really noticed these issues they have a lot of things in place to help break down these barriers for women or anyone with family mm -hmm. or caring commitments um so for example they let you do flexible or hybrid working um so you don't have to work nine to five you know if you want need to work in the evening because you have to go pick your child up from school um they have um actually at the moment a silver athena swan award so this is sort of a charter to do with breaking down these barriers for women, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. They have lots of other things in place. Um, so when you, if you go on maternity leave, when you want to come back, they have special days where you can come in and touch base with your manager and your lab. So you're not just returning out of the blue. Um, they're called like keeping in touch days. And they have um, grants for sort of to help you go to conferences. So if you have childcare needs, they will pay for your partner to come with you to look after your newborn baby, for example. So there's lots of things in place to try and help remove these barriers that traditionally would have stopped women progressing and possibly leaving science to have a family. Yeah, and also maybe not just progress, but also taking this step and go into mm. science. Because exactly. I imagine some little girls might already be dreaming of becoming a scientist one day. So nothing should prevent them from exactly. doing that and going after their dreams. Um, so since you're a scientist yourself, are there any women scientists or researchers who have particularly inspired or influenced your work? Yeah, I think I've been, I don't know if the word's lucky, but I've always had 
women around me. So my PhD supervisor, Dr. VLNC, was a woman. Then I got my first postdoc, my supervisor was female. Um, so that was Professor Judy Coulson. So she's now been my manager for seven years and she's the academic lead for the egg facility. At the university, our head of institute is female, our head of faculty is female. We had the university vice chancellor was female from, I think it was 2015 to 2022. So there are lots of women in successful positions that, you know, are good role models. You know, they they prove that being a woman does not stop you getting to high places. So um, to wrap up, in your opinion, what are the most exciting developments or breakthroughs on the horizon in CAM research space? So I think for us, it's really about developing a patient tissue model, so a PDX model. Mm -hmm. And I think that pipeline dream is that one day these could be used as patient avatars so you you could get a biopsy from a patient in the hospital you could implant it in eggs and you could screen treatments for that patient and use the data from the cam model to inform the clinicians on what the best options would be for that patient specific cancer and that's like true personalized medicine and mm -hmm. because of the timeline of the egg model, you could really have a fast turnaround for this um, information. Yeah, that's a huge difference to, mm -hmm. to other studies where you have sometimes to wait well, months yeah. to collect all the data needed to make a decision. Is there any additional information you would like to share or just a general message to the research community? The main thing for me is sharing the information um, so we have this CAM conference that's just started um, last year and it's every two years that's just on people working on the CAM model. And I think the main, I don't want to say barrier, but it's consistent or standardized protocols because depending on the country, people do different things because where you can take the model to. So some countries can take it to Uh, day 18 and we can only take it to day 14 so there is this lack of standardization so we can't necessarily replicate what somebody in another country has done with this model because of the timeline so I think it would be really good to have this standardized practice for mm -hmm. everybody you know to be able to utilize the model and that would probably be the biggest the biggest thing for me and just sharing the information um But we have this platform to do that now. Mm -hmm. Good. So if someone thinks about getting involved into CAM model research, mm -hmm. the best thing would be to contact this platform and yeah, so there's, get in touch. Um, yeah, there's lots of people who are involved in this conference. So obviously mm -hmm. attend the conference. That would be a great start. Or just contact anyone that is involved i mean contact me they can do that too <laughs> so sarah thank you very much for sharing those facts and insights i can say i learned a lot yeah thank you also from my side i hope we can follow up in the future yeah. thank you for your time for this interesting talk thank you very much for having me
Thank you everyone for listening. Let us know if you like our work by following KML Vision on LinkedIn, signing up for our bi-weekly Inside AI in Life Sciences newsletter, or subscribing to our podcast. Find more information in the description. Bye.